What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, Olivia, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How has your week been? It's been a busy week, but I'm doing great. Happy to be here. How are you doing? It's been good. Just busy, working, researching the normal. It is way too hot outside. It has been way too hot outside for like the last two weeks. It's like walking into hell directly whenever I leave my back door. So, but other than that, it's been good. Are you, uh, are you staying cool where you are in new Orleans? Cause I would imagine it's probably a little bit warmer there. Oh, it's real hot. It's like real, real hot and real, real humid. I'm basically just hibernating. I go from my car to the hospital, back to the car, to the house. And I don't, my garage is cooler. My garage is cooler than the outside is. The sad part is really cold in my garage. Yeah, I try to leave as little as possible unless I'm going somewhere that involves water. So, you know, this weekend I might just be turning on the hose and just standing underneath it because it's just too hot. I can't handle it. And I know it's like that everywhere. You know, we had smog here from the Canadian wildfires and all that stuff. I was like, it's actually smoggy. It gets insane. So, well, I'm glad that we're both surviving the heat. We're both making it. This week is your week. Talk to me a little bit about what we're going to be diving into. Well, this week we're going to talk about the biting story of the move-in murder. You got a thing for biting. Yeah, like the mad biter. You had a couple biting stories. That's, well, this one is describing the story. This is the biting story, you know, like the chilling story, the biting story. 
I got you. I got you. You got what I was put. I was trying to channel my inner John with this one. I love it. I am picking up what you're laying down. Most of the time I show up, I'm like, I don't have a title. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I was kind of skimming through the notes and it looks super interesting. And it looks like this one kind of goes back in time a little bit, which, you know, I'm a sucker for. I love those older cases. So I don't know. Should we just jump into it, kind of break it down? Because just by skimming through, I was really excited to talk about it. Yeah, let's get started. Let's do it. On June 20th, 1978, a young couple was moving into a house in Wood River, Illinois. Mark Fair and Carla Brown had been dating for about five years when they decided to move in together. Carla was 22 and was born in Lima, Ohio on February 28, 1956. She was the youngest of three sisters. Carla graduated from Roxana High School and began college at South Illinois University in 1975. While in college, she was well-liked by all her classmates. Carla's boyfriend, Mark Fair, was an electrician. The pair had their fair share of ups and downs, but moving in together was thought to be Mark's way of committing to a life with Carla. Now, on June 21, 1978, Mark took off for work. Carla had taken the day off to continue unpacking the couple's new home. At around 5.30 p.m., Mark returned home from work. He also brought his friend with him to help move heavy furniture around the house. But when he arrived, Mark found the front door semi-ajar. When he entered, he could hear music playing, but there was no signs of Carla. He called her name and looked throughout the house. Mark then decided to check the basement, and what he found was devastating. On the floor was lifeless Carla Brown. Her small body, just 4 feet 11 inches and only about 100 pounds, was found with her head and shoulders submerged in a large metal can full of water. Carla's hands were tied behind her back, and she was nude from the waist down. Her torso was donned with a thick sweater. Now keep in mind, John, this is the middle of June when this is happening. So for her to be wearing a sweater is a little unusual. Yeah. I mean, I know what the temperature was like here in June outside of Nashville. I wouldn't be wearing a sweater for sure. So that is a little strange. Yeah. While you're unpacking a house, like you're hot and you're working and doing stuff. Yeah. Unless you're like trying to cut weight, you know what I mean? And it's something where you're like, I'm trying to sweat as much as I can, but that's not how I work. I do see you pointing to your giant flannel jacket that you're always wearing. (laughs) Now getting back to the case. Additionally, there were two men's dress socks that had been tied together wrapped around her neck. In the adjoining room in the basement was a blood-soaked couch and belongings scattered around. It appeared as if there had been a struggle. Mark and his friend quickly called 911 requesting an ambulance as well. A short time later, detectives arrived on the scene, but they had a hard time gathering any information from Mark. He was clearly in shock and devastated by what he had seen. Crime scene investigator Alva Bush took the lead on this investigation. The crime scene appeared as if Carla fought her killer until the end, but it seemed that the crime scene had been staged, and Bush made a note of several odd things he saw. First, he noticed that the socks around Carla's neck were tied neatly together. If she was fighting as she was being strangled to death, the attacker would not have been able to tie them carefully. Additionally, Carla's hands were tied loosely with an electrical cord, and Bush believed that she would have been able to escape the restraints. It was odd to investigators that Carla had been wearing a winter sweater in June, but it also caught Bush's eye that the sweater was still buttoned around the neck despite the fight. In the adjacent room, the couch had blood-soaked cushions. A puddle of water indicated that the killer tried to clean up the bloody scene. Above the couch on the rafter sat a coffee carafe likely used to pour the water. It appeared to investigators that the struggle started in the room with the couch and that Carla's body had been moved to the water bin. There was an overturned TV tray that was covered with blood, and boxes and clothes were scattered all over the basement floor. Meanwhile, police investigated their first suspect, Carla's new live-in boyfriend, Mark. 
His alibi checked out as he and his friend had both been at work all day, and there was no possible way that he would have been able to come home around the time Carla was attacked. Because of this, Mark was quickly ruled out as a suspect. Yeah, I can imagine being a police officer that that is the first person that you look at, right? The two guys who showed up and they're like, we just found the scene. Mm -hmm. But it is really, really odd as you were going through it. It's stuff that I wouldn't necessarily even think to look at. And I think that's why this one has kind of piqued my interest so much where it's like, well, yeah, her hands are tied, but they're really loose. Or like the things around her neck are tied really carefully and kind of perfectly, which like I said, I would never think to be like, well, let me look and see how well that's tied or how neat this is or anything like that. Also, the other thing that really blew my mind was like, you're trying to clean a bloody couch with a coffee carafe. Like I had a Keurig that had the carafe and I'm like, mm-hmm. you'd have to be running upstairs and like yep. coming back and dumping it, like running upstairs. And it's just not a very effective way to do things. So and then to leave it just sitting on the rafter up there. Yeah, it sounded more of like I give up on trying to do this kind of thing where it's like I ran upstairs like 12 times and I'm just like, I'm done with it. And I put it back. But it is very interesting. It's kind of fun to put yourself in the shoes of the investigator and kind of realize like the things that you would need to look at. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, when detectives first arrived, they noticed two men sitting on the porch at the neighboring house. The house next door belonged to a man named Paul Main. Police interviewed Paul and his friend named John Pronte. They hoped the men would provide a clue as to who committed such a horrific crime. Paul and John told police that they had been on the porch most of the day smoking weed and drinking, but they had nothing to report. Later, both men would take a lie detector test and both pass. By talking to Carla's friends, investigators were able to pinpoint the time of her attack. Helen Fair, Mark's mother, was the last person to speak to Carla. Helen and Carla were talking on the phone between 10 and 11 a.m., but Helen shared that their call was interrupted by someone knocking on Carla's door. She told police that she tried calling Carla back between 12 and 12.30 but got no answer. This suggested that Carla was murdered sometime between 11 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. when Mark arrived home from work. Police had no real leads but were highly suspicious of the neighbors. Now, autopsy results would confirm the cause of death being homicide by strangulation. Carla had a large gash on her forehead, a cut on her nose, and a large laceration to her chin. Her neck had bruising from where the socks were tied tightly, and her jaw was severely fractured. A sexual assault was suspected but not confirmed, and it was noted that Carla did not have significant amounts of water in her lungs despite being found in a container of water. DNA was collected from under her fingernails, but DNA testing was not an option at this time. For the next two years, Carla's case would sit cold. But in 1980, crime scene investigator Bush would reach out to Dr. Homer Campbell from the University of New Mexico. Bush felt that new technology had emerged since they first processed the evidence back in 1978. Dr. Campbell was an expert in image enhancement. He would proceed to review all the crime scene photos. Because of this new technology, Campbell was able to improve the contrast and add depth to the images. And in the photos, he was able to identify markings on Carlo's right collarbone. They were bite marks. And these marks were never mentioned in the original autopsy report. Police needed assistance and brought in FBI profiler John Douglas. After reviewing the crime scene and evidence, Douglas made the killer's profile. He described the killer as a white male in their 20s who likely lived in the neighborhood. The murderer had some sort of technical training given the electrical cord. And Agent Douglas felt that the suspect was likely rejected by Carla in some capacity. He said the crime scene was disorganized, which suggested someone inexperienced. This was likely someone who had never killed before. Douglas even went as far to say that they probably drove a red or orange Volkswagen. 
there is something about profilers that has always just blown my mind. Because you see them on Criminal Minds, you're like, oh, that's mm -hmm. great for television. Until you realize that these people actually exist. And they're able to just go in and be like, all right, let me look at this. Let me look at this. This suggests this. And then they can come up with this. Most likely, this is the person who did it. And it's just, it's something that I think I'm jealous that my brain will never be able to work that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think it ties back to being like, oh yeah, I never would have thought to look at how tight the ligatures were or anything like that. You know what I mean? But it, it's crazy how good some of these people are. And the fact that we just missed bite marks. It's kind of crazy that a whole autopsy was done. We missed bite marks. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. It was just very laissez-faire, the first autopsy. This John Douglas, he has quite the resume. He's on like most of the forensic files. He has, um, if you look, if you look him up, he has used his profiling to crack a lot of big name cases. Um, so which was pretty cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure like in law enforcement circles, he's like a legend. Now, Douglas suggested to Carla's family to have her body exhumed and undergo another autopsy. Investigators also turned to the media to release the FBI's profile of the probable killer. Now, on June 1st, 1982, Carla Brown's body was exhumed, and the second autopsy was performed by Dr. Mary Case. This time, Dr. Case reported that the jaw had been broken in two places by a single blow of the head. There were three injuries to the skull noted to be done by three different blows, and each done with significant force. She noted bite marks on her right collarbone that were inflicted at the time of her death. And Dr. Case believed the cause of death to be drowning as there was presence of foam around her nose. This told investigators that Carla was likely still alive when her head was submerged into the water. Police were still wary of Carla's neighbor, Paul, and his friend, John. Detectives obtained orthodontic molds of Mark, Paul, and John and sent them to New York for further testing. Forensic odontologists, not knowing whose mold belonged to who, compared the three casts to the imprints found on Carla's body. The first two were not a match, but the third was identical. The bite marks belonged to none other than John Prante. Additionally, both John Prante and Paul Maine both matched the profile created by Douglas. With this new evidence, Paul and John were both brought in separately for questioning. Paul originally told detectives that John Prante came to his house and that the pair were smoking weed and drinking on the porch. But this time John said he was filling out job applications in the morning and did not see Paul until later that night while visiting another friend's house. But even more damning... After seeing the case on the news, several friends of John's came forward suggesting that he had been involved in the murder of Carla Brown. John Prante apparently told his friends that he was a suspect. He shared that he was next door and that he saw Carla's body and was able to look over the police's shoulders during the investigation. John told his friends details about bite marks on her collarbone and that she was found in water. But these details about the bite marks were not known in 1978. So how would John Prante know such specific facts? Police were able to convince a friend of John's to wear a wire. And during their conversations, he shared details that only police and the killer would know. Detectives finally had their killer. And John Prante was arrested and charged with first-degree murder of Carla Brown that took place in June of 1978. I don't understand. You know, we've done some cases like this before, but like where you would go out and brag if you did something like this, you know? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, people don't keep secrets. You know what I mean? Like if you tell enough people eventually it's going to get out. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I'm glad that he did because it seems like it's going to make the case against him stronger that he was out there blabbing. But like, why are you out talking about stuff that's not in the newspaper stuff that wasn't even known about when the murder actually happened? It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I guess the nerves got the best of him. 
You know, if you have this secret, I feel like sometimes maybe he just needed to talk about it. I'm not sure. But there was plenty of instances and witnesses that testified against him saying like, hey, we saw him like he talked about this. He came over at this moment and talked about the case. Well, I'm interested to see like what the motive is, because it seems like according to Agent Douglas, that maybe it was some kind of infatuation where maybe she caught his eye and then he was rejected, maybe. So I'm I'm interested to see as the trial goes on and stuff like that, like what we find out about it. Cause it just, you know, for it being your next door neighbor in your new house, it does seem like kind of random, you know? Yeah. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Well, now the trial began in July of 1983. Prosecutor Don Weber presented to the jury the story of what had taken place. He also highlighted the evidence that showed how John Pronte viciously killed Carla. Weber claimed that John walked over and knocked on the door while Carla was talking to Helen Fair. Prosecutors believed that there was some sort of argument or sexual pass, and when Carla declined, John attacked. They argued that she was forced into the basement where she was hit several times over the head with a TV tray. Then Carla was strangled to death. According to the prosecutors, it was then that John staged the crime scene. He made it appear that she had been sexually assaulted by removing her bottom clothes. He tied her hands loosely behind her back with an electrical cord he found in the basement. He then used Mark socks to tie a noose around her neck and then placed her in the water bin. They shared with the jury that at this point they believed Carla was semi-conscious. It's believed that John then went into the kitchen, got the coffee carafe, and began to try to wash away the blood. And the jury sided with the prosecution. John Pronte was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 75 years at the Illinois State Penitentiary. But Pronte continued to claim his innocence. He and his attorneys filed for multiple appeals, but all were denied. Now, while in prison, Pronte's attorneys were able to send for DNA testing. They wanted to see if Pronte's DNA matched the DNA from under Carla's fingernails that was not able to be tested in 1978. However, the DNA was too degraded to get accurate results, and he remained in jail. Now, in December 2019, John Pronte was released from prison after serving 36 years. The reason behind this was that the Truth in Sentencing Law was not in effect in 1983 when he was originally sentenced. So do you know what the Truth in Sentencing Law is, John? Yeah, I'm not familiar with it, no. So it basically means that they must serve a substantial amount of their time sentenced, but then they get a day off of their sentence for every good day that is served. So since he didn't have any issues while he was in prison, he basically got his sentence shortened by every day that was considered a good day served. Oh, gotcha. So it's like you do 60%, but then after that, like for every day that you're good, it knocks a day off. Yeah. So you could, in theory, depending on how long you're in prison, you could get out like substantially early compared to like a life sentence or something like that. Right. Since his release, Pronte, at the age of 72, was arrested and charged while driving under the influence during a traffic stop. And there's a quote that I read in one of the articles saying that in the last 37 and a half years, he said he hasn't been that high or intoxicated in in a long time. I can imagine, you know, if you're getting out of prison and it's been a hot minute, you know, and that's what you're into. 
that's probably the first thing you want to do is get a little taste of freedom and get a little taste of that sweet, sweet high. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And there was a couple articles that came across that just keep saying that he's still trying to like claim his innocence and, you know, get his name back under good graces and try to cancel out everything that had happened. But I mean, I honestly think he probably did it. This one gets a little iffy to me because the bite mark evidence. Mm-hmm. I know that we talked about this in a case before, and then we had mentioned like the Ted Bundy case and things of that nature. And so I remember wanting to like look it up and the California innocence project has said that although bite mark evidence is often introduced as being close to DNA in terms of accuracy, there has been no scientific validation for the notion that a person's dentition is unique to him or her in the same way that fingerprints or DNA are unique to each individual. And so that's where in my mind, I'm like, did they get the right guy or did they get a guy who is convenient? Because, you know, you think about like, I could bite into an apple 12 times. Is it going to look the same every time? Or is it like the way that I tear the apple away? Or maybe I bite in from a different angle. I'm not super convinced and like, like this is a hundred percent a way to determine that it was this person. So while what happened to Carla is absolutely terrible and it's like heartbreaking and I would really like to hope that they got the right person. I still have this question in my mind with these kind of cases where it's like, well, you know, could this guy potentially have spent all this time in prison for something that he didn't actually do? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thought to go through. Yeah, because there's no real, real hard evidence other than these bite marks. They found, um, and I didn't talk about it because it didn't really go anywhere, but out of all the fingerprints they found in the house, they only found one that didn't belong to Carla, and it didn't really come back. That one fingerprint didn't come back to anything. If it happened the way that the prosecutor laid it out, where this gentleman you know, came, knocked on the door, made a pass at her and was denied, it doesn't seem like he would have had the foresight to be like, oh, well, I'm going to go like put gloves on and then walk over and knock on her door in case she denies my advancement. And then, you know, I can kill her and not leave a fingerprint because you think about like the carafe was touched, the cord. There would have been a ton of stuff that this person actually would have had their hands on unless they wiped everything down before they left. But it seems like it would be almost impossible to miss every single one of them. Right. Right. Where are you putting this one on the deadbolt test? This one is going to be a little bit higher for me. I think I'm going to put this one at about a seven. And I know we've talked about this before, but the only reason it is that high is because of the fact that I put myself in Mark's shoes where I, you know, going away for work, give my wife a kiss. I, you know, I love you. I'll see you when I get home. And in my head, everything is fine. You know, and then when I come home and you just walk into something that changes your life forever, you know what I mean? And it's a loss and a grief that, I don't think anybody would be prepared for if they knew it was coming. So to just like open your door and walk into it blindly, it's, it's gotta be devastating and heartbreaking. Then to think about, you know, she was the oldest of three children. So her siblings and, you know, her friends and people that Carla mattered to, you know, you you just lost this person in the blink of an eye. You know what I mean? It's just, I don't know. That's the terrifying thing for me. So I I think for me, I'm going to put it right at a seven. What about you? Yeah, I'm going to put it in there about an eight. And I'm going to do the same thing you just did as a single gal. She's not single. She had Mark, but she was technically home alone. They were just kind of like starting their life out together. But like someone came into her space while she was home unpacking her house and someone attacked her and killed her. And like that part is terrifying to me that that could happen, you know, about and from somebody you don't even really know, you know. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that during last week's short on time, the Vicki Barton case. 
you know, your home is supposed to be your sanctuary. It's supposed to be where you're mm-hmm. safe. And so there is something that's just extra bone chilling about that being violated, you know, that just, it makes it a little bit scarier, you know? And yeah. like I said, as she was 22, she had her whole life out of her. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they were just starting their life, moving in together out of wedlock, not normal for the seventies, but they were doing it. Yeah. So, you know, I'd like, I hope they got the right guy is my hope, you know, and, and hopefully the right person served time for what they did. Yeah. But what if this, what if he is the right guy and he strikes again, you know? Yeah. I mean, most people who offend typically don't murder more than once, like statistically. Also, this dude's like 72. (laughs) So, you know, unless you're like buffed up grandpa, you know what I mean? He's been in prison for the last uh, 30 some years. Yeah. But 72 is still 72. You know what I mean? Like also, yeah, you've been in prison. Maybe you're lifting weights, but the health care in prison is not that great. Nor is the food. Right. So, you know, I'm not necessarily worried about him doing it again. I think it would be crazy if at 72 he was like, I'm striking again. You know what I mean? But it's just, I don't know. Can we not release this episode until he dies? Just in case he comes and gets me. No. And at the end, I'm going to put Olivia's address in the uh, show notes. So. Mr. Pronte, I apologize. No, I'm kidding. But it's just one of those things where you just hope, you know what I mean? Because there are so many, you know, when you look at things like the Innocence Project and stuff like that, there are so many people who do time for something that they didn't actually do, right. you know? And especially back then, we didn't have DNA, you know? We, we couldn't say for sure. So I don't know. I think that'll always be like a question in the case, but either way, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, that's it, John. That's all I got. Well, that's where Olivia and I are falling on the deadbolt test for this week's episode. I'm coming in at a seven. Olivia is putting it at an eight, but we want to know where does the murder of Carla Brown fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at check the locks pod. Find us on Twitter at check the locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. We would love to get to know you and spend some time with you. Olivia, this case, I mean, you know, I try to be punny and stuff like that, but this one really was just kind of a bummer. It had me like wrapped up into it and I wanted to know what was happening. But at the end of the day, it's just sad, you know? And so I really do need something just to lift my spirits. I need that good five-star review high. What do you got for us? You got something we can read this week? Yes. This week we have a five-star review from Mimi times four. They said, I love this podcast. John and Olivia have such a great relationship. I look forward to Mondays and Wednesdays so much. You guys give such great stories. Most I have never heard of. And I definitely check my locks a lot more now. Please continue doing what you do as it remains my top true crime podcast. Love that you guys are not monotone. So thank you, Mimi times four, even though I really feel like I'm a monotone type of gal. I have no idea what you're talking about, but thank you, Mimi times four for the five star. I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. In my best Kourtney Kardashian uh, monotone uh, voice. Welcome back to Check the Locks presents. No, I'm just kidding. But Mimi, thank you for taking the time to leave us that review. So happy that you are enjoying the show and that, you know, you're with us on Mondays and Wednesdays and just glad that we can deliver something that you are enjoying. And hopefully we continue to do that for a long, long time, but we would love to send you some goodies. Reach out to us. Let us know who you are so we can get you some stuff. We got stickers. Olivia, I just mailed you a whole bunch of stuff. We got coasters, stickers, buttons. I got some cool stuff in the mail this week, y'all. All sorts of stuff. So Reach out, let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you're in our Facebook group, reach out, let us know there. We would love to get you something out. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? 
Well, they need to go over to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll all the way down where you see all five stars, click them all and leave us a little bit of love and tell us what you think. Exactly what Olivia said. Head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us that review. They help us in so many ways. It gets us into other shows' recommendations. It helps new listeners find the show and really just helps us to grow our community, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. So again, head over to Apple Podcasts, or if you would like, there is a cheat code in the description of the episode you are listening to right now. Just go in the notes, hit that link. It'll take you right there. You can leave us a review. And if you are not an Apple user, maybe don't mess around with iTunes, you can leave us a review on our website as well. Just reach out to us and let us know that you've left it because we want to make sure that we read all of them. They all help. We want to read your review on the show. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. Get signed up today. We got a lot of great benefits, stickers, t-shirts, exclusive coffee mugs, all stuff that you can only get from being a patron. Plus you get your episodes ad free and early. So if you love check the locks, but you hate commercials, that is the best way to listen. So again, if you do want to financially support the show, help us keep the lights on, invest back into ourselves, become a patron, head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks and get signed up today. And if you cannot financially support the show, we definitely understand just listening and hanging out with us every week means just as much, if not more. So if you like what we're doing, you're sharing the show with your friends and family, just know that that means the world to us. That is how we're going to grow, right? You tell a friend, a friend tells a friend and so on and so on, right? That word of mouth, that grassroots sharing is really how this podcast is going to continue to grow. So again, if that's you, if that is something that you're doing, just know that we appreciate you more than we could put into words. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you are subscribed to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case, but until then, don't forget to Check the Locks. See you next week. Adios. Muchachos. (laughs) Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.